That video reminds me of a story I heard uh, the late, great pastor Adrian Rogers tell one time. He said, I was uh, on an airplane and I met a lawyer. He happened to be seated next to me on this seat and we began to talk about what we like to read. And so I said, I told him, I read newspapers and books and journals and devotional studies, but primarily I read the Bible. And he said, the attorney said to me, if you don't read any further than that, then how do you know what to talk about when you get up to speak? And he said, sir, man only has three problems, sin, sorrow, and death. And the attorney pushed back and he said, oh, come on, Dr. Rogers, man has more problems than that. That's a little simplistic. And Adrian Rogers said, no, just three problems. He said, no, no, there has to be more than three problems. You and I both know that. And so Adrian Rogers conceding said, all right, tell me another problem. He said, after a long pause, the man came back and said, you know, I've been thinking, man only has three problems. <laughs> Every problem you can think of this morning, uh, it fits under one of those categories. And guess what? Easter is the answer to all of those problems. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated the penalty of sin in the future and the power of sin in the present. Because Jesus rose from the dead, one day all the sorrow we experience will be swallowed up in victory in the glory of heaven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, then even death itself will be defeated. Because for those who belong to Jesus Christ, death is the portal to new life in him. And so in a very real sense, Easter is the answer to all of man's problems. If you have a Bible or device this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you've been thinking that Romans chapter 8 is not an Easter text when we think of Easter passages. But as we walk through these verses together this morning, in verses 31 through 39, I can assure you this, that the power of the resurrection is on display here in Romans chapter 8. Let me just say this before we read this passage together this morning. I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here because it's a family tradition for you and your family. Maybe you're here because you're spiritually searching, hoping to find some answers to life. Maybe you're here because you're a grown-up and you're still scared of your mom, amen? She told you you were going to church on Easter. You told her you weren't, and out of her purse, she once again lifted the old wooden spoon. You know what I'm talking about? And so I don't, I don't know why you're here this morning, what motivated you to, to be here this morning, uh, but here's what I do know. You are not here by accident. That for the past 21 days, literally hundreds of us have been praying that you would come today and the message would be heard today. And so that's you here this morning. God wants to speak directly to you three word because you are not here by accident. Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 says this. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written... For your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And verse 37 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who 
loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I feel like I say this every week, but this really is one of my favorite passages, right? I find that whatever passage I'm studying that week all of a sudden becomes one of my favorite passages. I'm discovering God's truth. But this really is at the top of the mountain for me because Romans chapter 8, some scholars have said, is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. And this particular section, verses 31 through 39, teaches us clearly and powerfully both the depth of God's love and the breadth of God's love for us. And in these nine verses, I want you to see what I believe are three life-altering, powerful truths about the depth and the breadth of God's love for us. I believe these truths can literally change someone's life this morning. And so let me share those with you. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is that Jesus' death proves God is for you. Despite being told this dozens and dozens of times over the last 21 years, there has yet to be a time where, in fact, the roof has caved in when someone has walked into church. You know how many times I've heard that before? Now, don't get comfortable because the service is not over, amen? And behind that thought is this idea that I could never show up at church because, you know, somehow God wouldn't be pleased with that, that God has not set his affections on me, God is not for me. But what's behind all of that statement is this nagging feeling that, that somehow we've picked up the idea that, in fact, God is not for us, God is against us. And so let me correct some theology this morning. God is against sin, but for sinners. Is that good news? That's what the Bible teaches Mark chapter 2, verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The apostle Paul, who some would describe as maybe the greatest living Christian ever, said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And that is a guy who wrote over half of the Bible. Jesus, his worst critics in the Gospel of Matthew, called him this term, he is a friend of sinners. Now, what I've learned over the years is this, that the word sinners is not a popular word. Like, it's almost a spiritual word for calling someone a loser. Am I right? But the reality is, popular or not, Romans chapter 3 says this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so just in case you're confused, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, wouldn't you like to be a sinner too, right? That's all of us this morning. And so the church in America's gotten this message lost in the culture. Some churches preach a gospel that basically says, yes, Jesus loves you, but he's incredibly disappointed in you. Isn't that a fun message to hear and celebrate? <laughs> you ever around those kinds of churches, right? The yes, he loves you, but he's actually disappointed in you, so get your life straightened up. Other churches are preaching the other end of the spectrum, and they're preaching a gospel that basically says Jesus loves you and your sin. And so let's be clear. Jesus is both for you and repentance from sin. It's not either or, it's both and is what the Bible teaches. All throughout the scriptures, Jesus is inviting people to repent and believe, to turn away from sin and self-righteousness and to turn towards him in full faith and surrender. And maybe you don't believe that message today, 
that God is in fact actually for you. And not everything, let's just be honest, not everything in the Bible is easy to believe, is it? I mean, did God really create the earth out of nothing? Did God really cause a worldwide flood? When God closes one door, does he really open a Chick-fil-A? I mean, these are questions we wrestle with, right? Important questions. But often our intellectual doubts, what I've learned over the years, is they're often rooted in emotional doubts. And so what I mean by that is this, is that often when life hits a rough patch, not not if, but when life hits a rough patch, those are the moments that we begin to wonder, is God in fact for me? Because it doesn't feel this way, given what's taking place in my life. I told a story a, a while back about a college student who had a friend killed in a tragic freak accident. And when she was unpacking our grief with uh, one of our pastors, she blurted this out raw in her grief. She said, I know that God loves me, but right now, I just feel like he's dumping on me. Only she said a different word that I won't say on Easter, all right? But here's what we know. That even in those moments of doubt when life is not going well and so surely God is not for us, that based on his interaction with doubting Thomas, what Jesus says, hey, doubters are welcome. And the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's actually unbelief. Think about it. If there were no doubts, there would be nothing to exercise faith over. One of the hardest doubts to wrestle to the ground is whether or not God is for me when life is going hard. Now, if you're listening, say amen. If that is you this morning, and that is the question that has brought you here, maybe you've been wrestling with for a period of time, here's what I want you to understand according to this passage. God is so for you that he put to death his own son so that through his death, you might experience eternal life in the future and the abundant life in the present. That's how for you God actually is. And if you're thinking, no way, too good to be true, then don't take my word for it. Take God's words for it. Look at verse 31 again. What does it say? He says, what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, in verse 31, when he says, what shall we say to all these things? He's looking backwards at all the things he's written up to this point in the book of Romans. And so what he's describing, let me give you the cliff notes. Basically, Romans chapter 1 through 3 says this, uh, we are miserable sinners. Chapters 4 and 5 says, but Jesus is a merciful Savior. And chapters 6 and 8 are basically saying, hey, we've been made dead to sin, but alive in Jesus Christ. And he's indwelled us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to do what we could not do and what we would not do left to ourselves. And so these statements here at the end of chapter 8, it's the crescendo. He's saying all these truths have hidden this uh, crescendo, and so these verses, and so what he's saying is, hey, because of all these things we've learned through these chapters, what we can conclude, according to verse 31, is that God is in fact for us. Now, if you're not convinced by verse 31, in that summary statement, look what he says in verse 32. He says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. Do you know what, who's included in all? You. I used to have a seminary professor, and he would say this phrase all the time. He said, all means all. That's all all means. And so he said, every time you see the word all in the Bible, you should take it at face value. And so what's he say? He says, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. God is so for you that the text says, 
God gave up his son. That is a definitive act. That took an act of God's volitional will. One writer said this. He said, the immeasurable greatness of God's love is seen in the infinite nature of his sacrifice on our behalf. So let me make sure that everybody understands before we move on. According to verses 31 and 32, no matter how you feel, no matter what you've been told, I want you to hear this clearly. According to the text of Scripture, God is for you. So much so that he gave his own son up for your life in the great exchange. The gospel literally means good news. That's the good news of the Bible, but we don't have a full appreciation for how good the good news is until we have an awareness of how bad the bad news actually is. And verses 33 and 34 give us a picture of how bad the bad news is when it tells us that Jesus' resurrection offers you a new standing. I don't know if you saw this or not, but you remember back, this is probably a few years ago, and this uh, was a shirt that was popular. Lots of people in Hollywood were wearing this shirt, and the, it was a shirt, and basically the shirt said, Jesus is my homeboy. Anybody see that? Anybody remember that? Right? That became a popular thing there for a while. I told Tasha, I said, I kind of like that shirt. I think I'm going to get one. And she said, no, in certain terms, you absolutely are not going to get one of those shirts. And I said, why is that? She said, two reasons. Number one, it's irreverent. And number two, that midriff cut, not flattering on you, all right? I was still carrying some holiday weight from Arbor Day five years ago, all right? (laughs) And the theology of that shirt is basically this. I'm cool with Jesus. And maybe that's how you view your relationship with Jesus. You wouldn't say that you're actively following Jesus. In other words, he doesn't actually factor in the real daily decisions that you're making about your real life that you're living uh, maybe you wouldn't describe yourself even as a Christian if someone asked you, but, but you're certainly not mad at Jesus. So you're not a follower, but you're not a hater. Not actively pursuing Jesus, but not actively opposing him either. And so let me speak to that reality that we're kind of, you know, Switzerland, we're kind of spiritually neutral, that, that I'm not really pursuing Jesus, but I'm cool with Jesus. Let me read you some verses, some of them from the very mouth of Jesus that challenges that concept. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Anyone, this is Jesus speaking, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you see that distinction? We're either saved or we're enemies. There is no cool in between. And then there's this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's a record of all those who've ever been saved, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's nothing cool about that, am I right? And what I've learned over the years is this. There's only two reasons people don't get saved. Number one, it's because they think they're too bad. That God would never welcome me into his family. Listen, if that's you, don't take my word for it. Go back and read verses 31 and 32 again. Be convinced by God's word when he said, hey, God is for you so much that he gave up his son on your behalf. And the second reason that people don't get saved is because they think they're too good. They don't need saving. 
They don't compare their life with the life vertically of Jesus Christ. They compare their life horizontally. They know some people who profess to be Christians. And and my goodness, if those people are going to heaven, then certainly I'm going to heaven because I'm a better person. They always compare horizontally, never vertically. And their minds, their theology is this, is that one day they'll get to heaven and stand before God and there'll be an eternal scales where they believe their good deeds have clearly outweighed their bad deeds and the scales will be tipped in their spiritual favor and God will grant them entrance into heaven. Now, if that's where you are this morning, if that's your theology, you say, hey, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Let me ask you two questions. Number one, how good do you have to be? When do you lay your head down at night and go, I've done enough? I've crossed the finish line. How good do you have to be if being a good person gets you? No one has an answer for that question. And the second question I would have for you this morning, if that's your theology, is this. Where did you learn that? Where did you find that in the Bible? And the answer is, you did not. Because that theology that somehow my good's going to outweigh my bad and eternity and I'll get into heaven, that is taught nowhere in the Bible Not only is it not in the Bible, it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Look at verses 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The elect is just a fancy word for those who are saved, all right? So who will bring any charge against the saved? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now, when he describes the saved, those who actually belong to Jesus Christ, he used a term, he said, hey, the reason that they're on the right side of God is because God has justified them. Now, that is a big theological word, but it's a simple concept. And the word justified is a legal term. It means that once uh, I came to Christ, my standing before God has been changed because of what Christ has done. Now, That idea, a few things about that idea. Number one, according to this passage, who changes a person standing before God? Is it you or is it God? The text says it is God who justifies. That's the exact opposite of you somehow working your way to change your standing before God. He says, no, it doesn't work that way. It is God who justifies is what verse 33 says. And the second thing we should wrestle with is this. Why is there a need to have my standing changed before God if I, in fact, am cool with Jesus? And the answer to that mystery is not a mystery at all. It's in verses 33 and 34. So at the end of verse 33, he says, hey, God justifies, changes a person's standing before him. And then in verse 34, he uses another word that we don't like, but this is the word he uses. He uses the word condemned. Now, over the years in teaching this idea of justification, I've had people say, oh, I I know what that means. I know what that means. That that means justified means just as if I've never sinned. That's not what that means. What they're saying when they say that is, is, you know, I was guilty, but it's just as if I've never sinned. And so now now I'm not guilty because of what Jesus done. Listen, that's not what it means. What justified means is this, is that I was guilty but condemned, verse 34, but now through Jesus Christ, I am still guilty, but I am pardoned. And what is a pardon? It is an act of reprieve committed by someone else on someone else's behalf. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
Let me give you verse 34. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's being raised. Who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Verse 34, he's he's preaching, hey, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Paul's preaching Easter. Paul doesn't even know this isn't an Easter passage, amen? Paul just says, hey, here's where our hope have a right standing before God is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. God is for you. God raised him from the dead so that you could have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I love what the end of verse 34 says. You ever wonder what Jesus is doing now? You ever think like, what's, what's he doing up there in heaven, right? Like, what, what are they, does it, you know, are they doing playing games? Or they, do they eat up there? Do they celebrate? They, they, what, like, what happens in heaven? Listen, verse 34 gives us a small picture. He says, he is indeed interceding for us. Let me give you the paraphrase. Here, here's what's happening in verse 34. Here's what he says. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He goes before the throne of God, accusing us night and day. What's that mean? That means he's going before and looking at our lives and saying, look at them. They don't love you. They're as guilty as sin. And listen, that is true. And what verse 34 says, that Jesus is interceding on our behalf, here's what that means, that every time that happens, basically Jesus is saying, yes, they are guilty, but they're with me. They're with me. Their standing has been changed, not because of what they've done, but because of what I've done on their behalf. Now, you ever wonder this? But how do I know that my sins can actually be forgiven? Maybe you're sitting here and saying, hey, you don't know me. That I am an incredibly wicked sinner. And if that's you this morning, then I would tell you what I do know about the Bible is this, is that despite if you're a wicked sinner, Jesus Christ is a merciful Savior. And if you wonder if he did enough to forgive your sins, then listen, that is the message of Easter. That Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice for my sins. How do I know that? Because God authenticated it when he raised him from the dead. And so he's preaching the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ changes our standing. And so the, the message of Easter is this, wonder no more. Wonder no more. God raised him from the dead. So the condemned can be pardoned. You'll never be enough is the bad news, but the good news of Easter is that Jesus was enough, which leads us to this last truth. Not only Jesus enough to forgive your sins in the past and present, Jesus' love guarantees your future. Early in my ministry, this is about 20 years ago, so if you're doing the math, I was seven. Very wise, though, for a seven-year-old. I just want to share that. There was a couple young couple at that time, uh, they were coming to our church, and they were, they, they were, often would avoid me. So that church, it was kind of like most of your smaller traditional churches, so the end of the service would happen, and the pastor would stand at the back and shake everybody's hand on the way. Anybody ever been to a church like that, where the pastor shakes your hand on the way out, right? Like, I'm, everyone knows me. I'm a big hugger, so I'd rather hug people. Not true. So, but at that church, the pastor stood at the back and shook everyone's hand. And this couple was coming, and I never met them. And so I just kept week after week waiting them for, to come through the line. And what I would notice is that when that service ended, they would shoot out the side door. And I thought, is there something wrong with me? Like if I said something to defend them, but they kept coming. And so finally, the, the mother of one of those 
people came and said, hey, she said, have you seen them coming? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I've been uh, seeing them coming. She said, uh, well, the reason that they <laughs> try to avoid you every week is they love the preaching. And I said, amen, it's hot, right? So she said, but, but they're living together. And so they don't want you to know that. And so, <laughs> so the mom did what good moms do. They told the preacher, amen, how great is that? <laughs> and I said, hey, we're thrilled they're here. Are they Christians? They're not Christians. I said, I don't expect Christians that, or non-Christians to act like Christians. I'm not offended they're living together. They don't know any better. And she said, well, they actually are trying to get up the nerve to come and talk to you because they want to get married. And I said, do you think, they think it's wrong that they're living together? She said, they know it's wrong to live together. I said, hey, I'm not a theologian, but here's what I know. There's only one way to fix that. It's get married, amen? And I said, you just tell them, come on. Just tell them to come on and we'll meet. And so, so she talked him into coming and meeting with me. And uh, so now, full disclosure, I, did, I have to say this, full disclosure, uh, the whole thing was shady on my part, all right? Because they were coming to talk about a wedding and I wanted them to come so I could talk about Jesus. Totally shady, but shady for Jesus, so it's cool, right? And when I began to talk to them about what marriage was a picture of union of Christ and his church and and begin to talk to them about the spiritual foundation of marriage and begin to ask them questions about their own spiritual life and their relationship with Jesus, huge tears started streaming down her face. And I had only been a pastor for about two years at that time. Listen, but even I knew as a 27-year-old, when she starts crying, we're talking about Jesus. Listen, even I knew spiritually, it's on like Donkey Kong. Amen? Like, I'm like, it, like she's going to get saved. The Spirit of God is drawing her to himself. And so... So I just said, hey, do you want a relationship with Jesus? She, and she couldn't even talk. She, she just shook her head. Absolutely, she wants a relationship with Jesus. And he's dialed in. Now, full disclosure, i got a problem on my hands because if she accepts Christ and he rejects Christ, I've got to tell you're not equally yoked. I don't know if we can do the sweating. So I'm like, come on, Lord, come on, Lord, come on, right? And so I look over at him. He's dialed in. And I'm just going to tell you what I thought. I thought, I said, hey, do you want to? relationship with Jesus too, and he's dialed in. And so I'm telling you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, wow, a two-for-one Jesus special today, right? And I said, do you want to receive Christ too today? And he said, no, I don't. And I said, well, that's the stupidest thing I know. <laughs> he said, no, I don't. I don't think I'm ready for that. And I said, I appreciate your honesty. And I said, I'm not here to pressure anybody. It wouldn't do, me, do you a bit of good for me to pressure you into something that wasn't sincere. And I said, but if you don't mind, I said, can I just ask you a question why that is? There's usually something we're kind of holding on to or maybe something we're not sure about or some of those kind of things. And, and he said exactly what some of you feel this morning. He said, because I know me. And I know that most likely if I do this, I'm going to let Jesus down. And I want to share with you what I shared with him. I said, you know what? You're right. You will. You will. But the good news of the gospel is this. He'll never let you down. Salvation is not about what you can do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done for you. You're not getting to heaven because you held tightly onto Jesus. Listen, you're getting to heaven one day because he was holding tightly onto you. 
And for those of you who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, and for those of you who would give your life to Christ today, here's the good news of grace. There's not a single thing you will ever do to separate yourself from the love of Jesus once you belong to him. Look at verses, don't take my word for it. Look at verses 35, 38, 39. What's he say in verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So category number one, there is no physical thing that can ever separate you from the love of Christ. That's the category he's preaching there. He goes on in verses 38 and 39. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, including you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when you hear those verses, there is a natural temptation to say, yeah, but, but what about, what about, I did this, or you know, what about this, this fall, you know, under these headings, you say there's nothing. So basically, he'll organize it into four categories, and every what about you can come up with, it falls into one of these four categories. And so category number one, he says there's no physical thing that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ once you're saved. Tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, sword, life, even death itself. He says there's no spiritual thing that can separate you from the love of Christ. He talks about angels or powers. There's no present or future action that can separate you from the love of Christ. He says things present nor things to come. And then lastly, he says, not rulers, not anything else in all of creation. That means no individual can separate you from the love of Christ, and that means you as well in that. Listen, let me say it again. You will not get to heaven one day because you are holding tightly on to Jesus. You'll get to heaven because he was holding tightly onto you. The text says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, I've got a couple Seminary degrees, and so this week I looked up the word nothing in the original Greek. You know what it means? Nothing. <laughs> Do you know what falls under the umbrella of nothing? Everything. Everything and anything you can think of, it's not enough to separate you from the love of Christ once you've received Jesus Christ according to this passage. That is the message of Easter. God is for you. Verses 31 and 32. You need a new standing before God. Verses 34 and 35. And once you receive Jesus to receive that new standing, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. And so the message of Easter this morning is this. You can walk in today guilty and condemned. But you can leave today guilty but pardoned. And the reason I know that's possible is because God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you'll receive him today as your Lord and Savior, then one day God will deliver you from death as well. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I'm going to unapologetically ask everyone in the room this morning, what is your next step with Jesus?
For some of you, it's to finally come to the place to cast aside all those excuses and finally and fully receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For some of you, it's been a while since you've been here and you've been reminded of the beauty of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. And so today's the time to renew that walk with Jesus Christ and commit yourself afresh again to walking with him. That Easter's not a holiday, it's a lifestyle. For some of you, it's to finally believe maybe you're a Christian, but you've had this nagging feeling that in fact God is not for you because your life has been hard. Listen, don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. God is for you. It's what the death of Christ tells us. Nobody here is too bad. They cannot be saved. Nobody here is so good. They don't need to be saved. Everybody here can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I can't think of a better time to do that than on Easter. And so if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if it's the desire of your heart, Would you pray with me this morning? Not, not that it's a magic prayer. These aren't magic words. But if this expresses the desire of your heart, would you pray with me this morning to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Father, I confess that when I compare my life against the life of Jesus, I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins. And I believe his payment was enough because you raised him from the dead that first Easter. And so, Lord, in full faith today, I want to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to be born again. I want to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, to the best I understand it, with a full faith that I can muster up this morning, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. Lord, save me. If that's you this morning, your heads are still bowed, and you prayed to receive Jesus Christ today, let me encourage you to share that with someone. Let me encourage you on the side of your worship folder to check off that box that says, I accepted Christ today. I want to begin a relationship with today. Let me encourage you to do that because there is no secret disciple of Jesus. Jesus always calls us to follow him publicly and de declare that we, in fact, are not ashamed. God, we rejoice that anyone and everyone today who took a step forward with Jesus, we rejoice because we know that's an act of your grace. And God, all of it's possible because of Jesus Christ. May he alone receive the glory again this Easter. We pray in his name because we can. Amen.